Sometimes it feels like the sun will never rise, like the birds will never sing again. That's right. When you don't know what to do, just keep on breathing. From the City of Angels in Los Angeles, welcome to all my listeners out there at Radio Land. I'm Dave, the Caregiver's Caregiver at caregiverdave.com, along with my lovely co-host, former mayor of a California beach town and best-selling author, Debbie Peterson. We're also coming to you live and on demand 24-7 on numerous syndicated radio and podcast networks on 26 global audio and video platforms, including iHeartRadio, iTunes, YouTube, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Vimeo, Stitcher Radio, Blog Talk Radio. And the list goes on and on. In fact, we are very proud to be voted number one caregiver podcast on Feedspot out of thousands and number one on Player FM and number one on CaringVillage.com. And we have an especially exciting show planned for you today. Anne Maria Hester, MD, is a board certified internist with over 25 years of clinical experience caring for patients in multiple settings. She was struck by the tremendous amount of unnecessary pain and suffering which motivated her to start writing patient empowerment literature while still in medical school. She's written several books, including her latest, published in 2022, called Patient Empowerment 101. Mm -hmm. And we'll find out more about the doctor. But before we get started, I do want to take this moment and thank my last week's guest, Phyllis Anderson, founder and creator of Carefolio, healthcare journal and organized solution for stress-free, care-free, enabling caregivers to focus on excellence. And just a reminder, you can watch or listen to that interview and all our interviews on our membership website, caregiverdave.com, or any of the any of the other 26 global audio and video networks that I mentioned earlier. All right, enough of that. Dr. Ann, so great to have you on the Caregiver Dave Show. It's an honor to be here. Good. I always like to ask my guests just who is Dr. Ann Hester and why was she placed on this earth? Well, I think we all have a purpose. My passion is empowerment. My dad was a primary care doctor in Evansville, Indiana, and the community center has since been named after him since he passed. But just seeing the impact that people can have on other people's lives, it is so motivational. And that actually led me to become a physician myself. So there's just nothing like being able to help people, empower them, get them out of pain, teach them important things that can change their trajectory. It is more blessed to give than to receive, isn't it? Si, senor. That's what they say. And I've found that to be true as well. I'm sure Mayor Debbie has felt that way also. Absolutely. So why should people become empowered in their healthcare journey? <laughs> that is a loaded question, but <laughs> let me tell you, right now, America is facing a potential shortage of up to 124,000 doctors in 11 years. Wow. If you consider the currently unmet needs of a lot of Americans in certain urban areas, as well as rural areas, that number can reach 180,400. So really? just... Try to imagine the effective shortage of 180,000 doctors in 11 years. That's like a medical tsunami. 
In addition to that, nurses are leaving the field. Nurses are upset. Pharmacists are upset. The health care that we've been used to getting is going through some serious growing pains. So we have all these solutions from the government, from insurance companies, from all of these high-level uh, organizations. So they're like the general and the captain, but it is the foot soldier who's really going to have to deal with the brunt of this. And so it's important for people to become empowered to optimize their care, expedite their diagnoses, and lower their medical bills. Well, doctor, you and I have a lot in common because I said the same thing about caregivers. There's a caregiver tsunami on the horizon. There's all these uh, baby boomers getting older and there just aren't enough caregivers. There aren't enough facilities. There aren't enough uh, money in the Medicare system. You name it. So now you tell me that the nursing system is also in trouble. What are we going to do? It's very concerning. And while we can't fix everything, everybody can take some steps. Everybody can learn what he or she needs to know to be able to empower himself or herself and also take care of family members. I spent most of my time as a physician on the hospital wards. I was a hospitalist or a hospital-based internist. And I can't tell you how many times a caregiver was needed. We couldn't reach them. There are so many different issues that were required that were unmet. And another thing, there are many times that there was a caregiver at bedside, but that caregiver had no idea what to ask, what to do, what the next step should be. And so it is vital because we are all growing older. I'm in my 60s. I have a medical background, but I'm concerned about this medical tsunami. I mean, who's going to be there? I can't Uh prescribe my own medication from the hospital. I can't take care of myself. Everybody is at risk. And everybody needs a caregiver. You don't have to be 80 years old to benefit from a caregiver. caregiver. You can be 20 years old and have that person by your side who can help you navigate the healthcare system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Debbie, you got a question? Oh, I'm feeling really overwhelmed (laughs) by this. And so I'm, I'm, I'm hoping you have solutions. And I'm in a rural community and we have a terrible time finding doctors. In fact, I haven't had a primary care doctor for well over a year. And I've been waiting for over a year for 14 months just to get in to get my Medicare appointment. (laughs) So yeah. There are several things. One thing, of course, if it's non-urgent, televisits, they can be effective. But for people who are going to go see a doctor, it's important for them to be equipped. It's important to, number one, prioritize your concerns. Because if you have a 15-minute appointment and your doctor is overbooked and you really have three minutes face-to-face, you may not be able to get through everything. And so prioritize your concerns so at least you get the most important things addressed during that visit. And if you cannot address everything you need, ask the doctor the most effective, time-efficient way to address your other concerns, whether it's by phone, contact this nurse, whatever the case may be, so you can get your needs met. And we need to get in the habit of learning to be efficient because as we approach this medical tsunami, we're not going to have follow-up visits in the next two or three weeks. They may be months out. And so we need to have a different mindset 
as far as how we get to the meat of what we need and get those things addressed in a timely manner. In addition, people need to understand that they can give a doctor a, what I call one minute elevator speech that will help that doctor diagnose them quickly and efficiently. And that's based on eight components of what we call the HPI, the history of present illness. These things were mandated by Medicare and many other insurance companies for decades. And it was only this year that they took that mandate out. Otherwise, when physicians build a high level or service, if they were audited and they could not show that they documented a certain number of these eight elements, they could be charged with Medicare fraud. Oh. So I'd like to go over these. These are important. If you have a piece of paper and a pencil, please jot them down. Yes, and I would also uh, recommend when you prioritize, write it down because sometimes I think, oh, I'll, I'll remember. But you get yeah. there and your mind just goes blank, you know? Absolutely. You're angry with the doctor for being two hours behind. There you go. You're cold. You're in pain. That is not the time to put things together. So absolutely write down your prioritized list. Okay, so whenever you develop okay, whenever you develop a new symptom, see context. What was going on? For instance, if you say I developed back pain an hour after I lifted the heavy sofa, he's not going to order an MRI to look for a spine cancer. The context. Um, number C, the character. Try to describe it. Give an adjective. If you have pain in your chest that's sharp, your doctor is going to be less concerned about a heart attack that if you said, I have this dull pressure squeezing pain. The next is location. Don't say, I have belly pain. We don't know what that means. You've got a lot of organs in there. I have pain in the upper right abdomen below my ribs, the lower left abdomen, around my belly button. Be specific because when you can pinpoint the area of your abdomen that hurts, you can help a doctor focus in on the organs in that area. And then you have associated signs and symptoms. You know, when I develop abdominal pain, I have nausea, I have vomiting, I have diarrhea. Then you have modifying factors. What makes it better, what makes it worse? I'm walking and within two blocks, I develop this severe chest pain or I become short of breath. On the flip side, I develop a headache and I take a Tylenol 30 minutes later, I'm better. Those things Tell the doctor something. A, a bleed in your brain from an aneurysm, it's not going to get better in 30 minutes of the time at all. Mm -hmm. So whether it's better or worse, that helps. Uh, severity. Use a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being, oh, my gosh, you know, this is the worst pain of my life, 1 being mild. If you're having just mild pain, moderate pain, don't tell your doctor you have a 10 over 10 pain. That's going to let him know that you don't really understand what that means. I've had patients in the hospital, what's your pain level? It's 10 over 10 after texting, watching TV. 10 over 10 is you know, excruciating, screaming, child labor, broken bones. Um, those things are 10 over 10. Duration and timing are the others. How long have you endured the pain? That's the duration. This started two months ago. I've endured it for two months. That's different from the timing. Each time it occurs, it lasts two or three minutes. So I'm going to go over them again. See context. See character. L, location. S, severity. T, timing. 
A, associated signs and symptoms. D, duration. M, modifying factors. When you develop a new symptom, think about all of those things. So when you sit down to talk to the doctor, you can give that doctor within a minute a very quick and simple way to pinpoint the most likely things that are going on with you, which basically means if he doesn't have to spread a wide net in diagnostic tests, he's not going to order a lot of tests and procedures. Order medications that may or may not work as a trial. Have you come back in a few weeks? Mm-hmm. By the time you finish your last sentence, he should have a very good understanding of what's likely going on. And they taught us at a medical school. And I thought the doctor was a quack when he told us that by the time your patient finishes the last sentence, you should have a short list of what's going on. It's not the MRI. It's not all these diagnostic tests. It's what the patient tells you. And after decades in practice, it is so true. Wow. That's great advice. Should we be scared about the future? Is is this country, is the medical system going to get better? Is it going to get worse? Is it going to stay the same? I know you don't have a crystal ball, but can things really change? I'm concerned that they're going to get worse. When you have doctors and nurses leaving at this rate, uh, and the population continues to age, there are needs out there that it's hard to see how those needs are going to be met. And so that's why it is so important to do all you can. You can't do everything. You can't fix um, high-level problems. All you can do is what you can do. So equip yourself. I also strongly suggest that people have a personal copy of health records. Even if you have health insurance and you use a portal, that's one thing. But what if you change insurance companies and you don't have that last EKG, you don't have that last ultrasound of the heart and so forth. You have to go see a specialist. That specialist might need to order your records, wait till the records arrive and say, okay, well, come back to see me in a couple of weeks. We don't have that kind of time. When you walk in to see a doctor, you should have the basics. You should have a medical record for that in the book. But essentially, if you have a three-ring binder and you have your medical diagnosis, your surgeries, your medication allergies, your prior hospitalizations, a copy of your discharge summaries, which the hospital can send to you, um, your doctor's information, your pharmacist information. You have all of these things divided just like a doctor would in our old paper charts. Then wherever you go, whether it's the ER or any place else, at least you'll have information. Have those important lab tests. Have the copy of the EKG, the CAT scan, the MRI, all of those things. You should have in one document. The old saying, American Express, don't leave home without it. I say your medical record, don't leave home without it. Debbie? That is such helpful information. And I I confess, I always expect the doctor to just figure it out. And I'll answer any questions. And um, I'm I'm realizing that, gosh, I could have done myself a lot of favors if I had just gone in with giving as much information as possible. And and I know we need that information when you go into the doctor's office, you have to fill out all those forms and have that information. But, but it hadn't occurred to me that maybe I need to have it right to hand for when they need it as well. So that's really helpful information. Absolutely. 
Thank you. And I gave one person this information, these eight bullet points, and a few days later she ended up in the emergency room and she had them in her phone and she pulled them out and she went through those bullet points and the doctor diagnosed her quickly. And at the end he asked, are you in the medical field? I've never had anybody speak to me that way. And so we need to equip people. This is not hard. It's just that we have not done a good job equipping citizens with the tools they need to put themselves at the center of their own healthcare team. So are you, um, are those things that you cover in your book? Can people get more on those by getting your book? Yes, absolutely. All of those things are in the book. And the part, the book is Patient Empowerment 101 more than a book. It's an adventure. The adventure is a sister website where they can actually go. The book has those internal pages where they can go and they can download these forms. Abdominal pain, the frequently asked questions that we want to know and a lot of other forms. So they can download them. They're Word documents. So they can fill them out on the computer. They can save them. They can print them. They can email them to themselves. And everything you need for your own personal medical record, those forms are in there as well. They're in the book, but if you want to have a hard copy, a Word document that you can print, all of that is accessible through the URL pages given in the book. And there is, um, I have a, another site, patientworld.net, where I actually do a master class on patient empowerment. We have got to be empowered and we've got to do better teaching people these things. You don't have to go to medical school. There are not enough doctors and nurses on the planet to educate people. We just have to be wise in how we go about giving people information so they can help themselves. Doctor, um, you said there's a shortage of doctors and nurses. Um, why is that? Aren't enough uh, young people going to medical school and becoming doctors and nurses, or are they all becoming lawyers and engineers? Are there any statistics on that? There are. I don't have those specific statistics, but let me say this. When my father was a physician, uh, being a doctor was very prominent. Everybody wanted to be a doctor. He talked my two older brothers into being doctors. I became a doctor after he passed, so he didn't know. But there was a time that doctors, you know, encouraged their kids to be doctors. The doctors I know now, they're like, I'm not going to talk my kids into this. It's hard, it's stressful, it's demanding. You give too much of your life away. Doctors are leaving the field because of stress, because they're being burned out, because of all the things that are demanded of them. A lot of people are retiring early. And then you have this exodus of physicians and the new doctors coming in, the balance is just not there. So you have this aging population and you have an exodus of doctors and nurses who are also burning out, but you don't have enough people coming in to fill those spots. In the face of higher healthcare demands by an ever aging population, it's yeah, a lot of things. A friend's daughter of mine who just uh, graduated Columbia University, and she was going to be a doctor, and now she's saying, you know, I don't want to do that. Uh, it's a stressful job, long hours. Their hands are tied by the insurance company, by Medicare, and this and that. Um, where, where do we get that impression? Do we see our doctors? Do they seem stressed out? Uh, do they seem like... You know, all they're doing is spending three minutes with a patient, moving on to the next one, not really listening to us. Is that is that where they got this perception from, or is it somewhere I think, else? I think it's multifactorial. I think that people see how stressed their physicians are. 
I think there's a lot of word of mouth as well. I am not encouraging my children to go into the medical field. My brothers are not encouraging their children to go into the medical field. And so instead of my friend's dad is a doctor and he's going to be a doctor and I want to be a doctor, that is dissipating. People, they want quality of life. They don't want to spend all this time in school do all these years of this intense right. training when they see that their friends, they go into technology fields and they're making more than doctors and they don't make those types of sacrifices, nor do they have to give up so much of themselves and their family lives and everything in order to be a physician. Is there any hope for the medical field? Is there anything that the system can change so that doctors are once again uh, sought after uh, to be you know, in that profession? I think if the quality of life became commensurate with the sacrifices that physicians make, it might turn around. But as we're approaching this medical tsunami of a healthcare system, I don't see how that's going to happen anytime soon, how we can promise doctors they can work eight-hour days and have weekends off and holidays off when we're going to be short so many physicians. Right, it's a numbers game. And even if they double the doctor's salary, uh, doctors are realizing that you know there are things more important than money. Absolutely. Money, you you don't do this just for the money. You know, I'm glad that that I'm elderly and and, you know, we're not gonna be here much longer, but you know, I've got kids, I got grandkids, I got great grandkids, and they're the ones who are gonna bear the the brunt of this. Mm -hmm. Wow. So how can we save on medical bills right now? Uh, in the current system that we have? There are a couple of things. Um, If you do not have a lot of medical issues, then consider a high deductible health plan because your premium is going to be much lower. And if you only go to the doctor once a year, it may be less expensive for you to just pay out of pocket when you go than have several hundred dollars a month for your medical bill, for your premium. In addition to things that I've talked about, as far as optimizing your care, um, that is going to help minimize your cost because if the doctor is not going to be ordering all these tests and procedures and you have to pay a copay or your deductible get pulled down because you're getting all these tests, that is another clear way. By partnering with your doctor, helping your doctor understand that's important to help lower the cost. Also, if you're hospitalized, know whether you're in the observation status or an inpatient. If you're considered observation, you may be getting a lot of tests and procedures done, but you could be responsible for a much higher percentage of the bill. And a lot of people don't understand. They think that once they go to the emergency room and they're put in a room, they are what we call an inpatient or they are on that level of of care that Medicare and other insurers pay a high level. If you're an observation, that's, that's basically outpatient care in a hospital setting. And so you may be expected to pay for every Tylenol that you take. And you know there's a big markup. You may be expected to pay for your IV fluids. So know what's going on. There are times that you might not need a lot of the tests that the doctor might want to do in the hospital if he if he, he knows that this is significant. For instance, the person may come in and have anemia. The doctor may say, well, you're here. Let's go ahead and run all these tests. If there's no evidence of active bleeding, 
Those things can be done in your doctor's office. So ask if you're in the observation care and if you're concerned, let the doctor know and ask what he can do to minimize the unnecessary tests and procedures in the hospital. And sometimes you might be able to take your own medication, never bring it and never take it on your own because you could be, um, you could duplicate the medication, you could end up in a life-threatening situation. But there are times that your the pharmacy of the hospital might not have your particular brand on formulary. And then the doctor might give you permission to bring, to have the family members bring in your medication. And you'll take your medication, the nurse will have it, or the pharmacist will have it. But even something like that, that will decrease your hospital bill if it is appropriate based on what the doctor feels, you don't have to pay for all those pills if you're in the observation unit. Yeah. Now, I don't know what state you're in. Where are you? I'm in Maryland. Maryland. So uh, Debbie and I are in California, and I don't know the status of Obamacare, you know, where there was mandates and there were penalties if you didn't have it, and and all of a sudden your your plans were limited. Uh, men were being forced to have maternity cares, you know, crazy stuff. But here in California, we have our own version of Obamacare, and mm-hmm. it's very restrictive. Um, what does the rest of the country look like? Because you mentioned, oh, well, it requests a high deductible. Well, a lot of times you can't request it. You know, you got two or three plans to choose from, and that isn't an option, at least here in California. Uh, at least it was. I don't know how. I can't stay on top of how fast things are changing or if they're changing at all. What do you know? I can speak to the country in general. I can speak to locally. And a lot of people, they have remote jobs. If you work for a corporation that's across the country and that that corporation may be headquartered a thousand miles away, but they can still give you options on your healthcare plan. Mm -hmm. And so it might be a matter of what's available in your state. It might be a matter of what your employer makes available to you. Mm -hmm. But in many situations, people are able to get a high deductible plan and that can help minimize the out-of-pocket cost. Yeah. It's ironic. Since I went on Medicare, I'm paying more than I did when I wasn't on Medicare. And I thought that's what all my money was going to for Mm -hmm. all those years of retirement. And uh, don't get me started on that. (laughs) Don't get me started either. (laughs) (laughs) So how can can we care? I guess there's no answer for that. Just getting us upset. Um, How can we care for loved ones in the hospital? I mean, uh, we're we're fortunate enough not to be in there, but uh, unfortunate to have a loved one in there. Um, Are there things we should do, should not do? Yes. Number one, try to be there. If you cannot be there, be in touch with the nurses regularly. A lot of doctors around during a certain period of time, 10 to 12, 8 to 10, whatever the case may be. Uh, We're in an era where hospital-based physicians, hospitalists like I most of my career uh, as um, they may have floor rounds that at a certain time of the day or morning, the doctor is typically going to round. Ask the nurse what time of the day the doctor should round. Try to be there. Have a little notebook. Ask questions. Understand the medications your loved one is taking. Also, encourage your loved one to get out of the bed. A lot of people don't want to get out of the bed to move around. They just want to lie there. That puts them at risk of blood clots and other things. And so be there, encourage them to get out of bed. Don't let them sleep all the time during the day because they won't be able to sleep at night. 
the sleep-wake cycle becomes disrupted, and that can impact their healing. Know the medicines they're taking. If they don't need a catheter in the bladder, it shouldn't be there. Ask the nurse and the doctor regularly, does this catheter need to be there? Some people just leave it in because they just don't want to get out of bed, and they talk the nurse or the doctor out of taking it out because it's more convenient. But the catheter in the bladder can cause a urinary tract infection, they can spill over to the blood, that can be fatal. Also, people die from blood clots, and sometimes the first sign of a blood clot is when the code thing goes off and the doctors and nurses start running because the patient has had a cardiac arrest. There are things you can do in the hospital to decrease the risk of blood clots. Typically, we give injections underneath the skin. And a lot of people don't understand why they're getting them, and they just may say, I don't want them. Go away. Leave me alone. I'm tired. Not realizing that by doing so, they're putting themselves at risk of a potentially fatal blood clot. Sometimes doctors put the pumps on the legs, and that helps pump the blood back up to the heart. Sometimes the doctors may say, okay, I need you to walk around regularly. So based on the level of risk of a blood clot, the doctor will determine what to do to decrease the risk. We call it DVT, deep venous thrombosis, a blood clot in the legs that can break off and cause a blood clot in the lungs, which could be fatal. DVT, prophylaxis means you just want to prevent it. So you always need to know when you go to the hospital, what are you doing to decrease my loved one's risk of a blood clot? So those are some important things. And also make sure the IV lines are clean and dry. You don't want to get bacteria in them that can creep into the line that end up in the bloodstream. That can be catastrophic. If they have a large line, we call it central line, like under the collarbone, make sure it doesn't stay in any longer than it needs to. That is another potential source for bacteria creeping in, getting into the bloodstream that can cause septic shock. So those are important things. And when it's time for discharge, find out what steps you need to know. What are the follow-up steps? What tests need to be followed up? You might not have all the results back by discharge. That is vital. The doctor may order a test that may take several days. You might go home if it's lost the follow-up. And your doctor on the outside doesn't get the test results. He may miss something or people might not know about something that requires immediate attention. So ask if there are any pending test results on discharge and anything that needs to be done after discharge. Okay. Well, I can't believe how fast our time has gone today. I, I haven't gotten to all my questions, but I assume these questions can be answered in your book, right? Yeah. So how can someone get a copy of your book and how can they contact you if they want to contact you? So the book is called Patient Empowerment 101, more than a book. It's an adventure. It's available on Amazon. It can be ordered from Barnes & Noble. And a good way to reach me is to go to patientworld.net um, slash health hacks. Um, just send a message through there. You can sign up to get health hacks uh, information on important health issues. But I can certainly be reached there or support at patientworld.net. That is the direct email. Support at patientworld.net. That will come directly to me. Thank you. And Debbie, uh, how do people get a hold of you if they want to find out more about what you do? You can go to mayordebbie.com. Mm -hmm. Very good. And I'm at caregiverdave.com. I do a lot of stuff. 
And I uh, just want to thank everybody for tuning in every Wednesday, making us the number one caregiver podcast on the internet. And um, if you see a like or follow button at the bottom of the platform that you're watching this on or listening to this on, please click it. It helps us reach even more caregivers. Thanks for tuning in. Bye-bye. Have a blessed day and a blessed week. Bye. Anytime we suffer loss, we grieve. And a lot of people don't realize what even the grief process is. But it could be five to seven steps ranging from denial. I don't believe this is happening. Anger. Oh my gosh, I'm so upset this is happening. To a form of bargaining. How can I get out of this? To depression which is a very serious thing because that often leads to suicide. And then finally, finally, after you realize you have no more control over your situation and you're totally okay with the new normal that it brings, that wonderful, wonderful place called acceptance. Like the sun will never rise, like the birds will never sing.